It occurred to me that on a normal weekend, if I saw this many empty seats at 10 o'clock, I would probably say, what in the world did Pastor Elizabeth say last weekend? <laughs> she drove away a third of the congregation. But as I hope you know, we've got scads of people serving across the street in the park. Things are going wonderfully over there. And our 1130 service will be held there. And I hope that you'll be praying that as people from the neighborhood just wander in, because the smell of ribs and mac and cheese and things will bring people in. Uh, pray that they will linger, that they'll hear the message, and that God will encounter their heart. Well, this weekend, because of that outdoor service, we're going to set aside the series that Elizabeth started last weekend, Jesus in His Own Words. We'll be continuing that next weekend and then throughout the summer. But this weekend, I want to revisit a teaching that I shared over a decade ago. Its core lesson is one that we need to revisit from time to time because it needs applied more than once. The lesson is embedded in a story recorded in the Gospel according to John. It's a familiar story to many of you. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And partway through that narrative, we read these words in John 11, beginning in the 38th verse. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Today I'm taking my title directly from the narrative. I'm entitling this teaching, Remove the Stone. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, we want to encounter you, the living God, through your living, powerful word. It always has more for us than we could ever anticipate. And it always rewards the repeat visitor. We never return to a passage without getting some new insight. But Father, we know all of those things depend upon the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds. So I pray for a fresh equipping from the Spirit for my role as a teacher. And I pray for a fresh equipping of the Holy Spirit for all of us as Jesus' followers. Open the eyes of our understanding. Help each of us to hear that word today that we need to hear in our current situation. And then help us to respond with life-transforming faith. As always, we pray these things for the honor of Christ, for the welfare of his church, and for the sake of our mission in a broken world. And we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God together today, may the Lord be with you. There are times in life 
when some good thing that our heart longs for appears to be hopelessly, hopelessly out of reach. And in those moments, if we aren't careful, disappointment can move into our hearts like an unwanted house guest. And once it moves in, it'll quickly claim the master bedroom, eat everything in the fridge, and then open the door to its close friend, serious doubt about God's love. Now, in an effort to evict this unwelcome guest, we remind ourselves nothing's impossible with God. But even as we say those words, sometimes they ring hollow. We can't bring ourselves to really believe them. So we do the next best thing in our effort to deal with our disappointment and doubt. We look for someone or something to blame. And our search usually begins with the closest target at hand, the person that we see in the mirror. You see, when your hopes are frustrated, when disappointment is dominating your life, it's easy for all of us to assume that we're the problem. Because while our struggles and our doubts and our failings are hidden to others, they are well known to us. We have insider information on ourselves. But here's the problem. Taking the blame upon yourself for the disappointments of life is too painful to continue over the long haul. At some point, you're going to look for another strategy. You're going to look for relief. And the next place we look, we blame others. As descendants of Adam and Eve, we come by that tendency naturally. You might say it's encoded in our spiritually damaged DNA. If fear of God was the first fruit of human sin, blaming others was the second and came quickly on the heels of fearing God. And in this culture, our efforts to blame others for our problems are applauded because this has become a culture of victimization. It's always someone else's fault. Now, like blaming ourselves, blaming others doesn't bring any lasting relief. So eventually, we get around to blaming God. That's what Adam and Eve did. Now, when we blame God, we choose our words very carefully. We don't want to sound disrespectful. And we certainly don't want to invite the Lord's discipline. But even while we're saying the words, we know we aren't fooling God. Long ago, two sisters walked through the deep valley of disappointment. The thing that their hearts had longed for, the rescue of their brother Lazarus, now seemed hopelessly out of reach. He had died. He was buried. And the tomb that held his body also held their hopes. So they were disappointed. They were devastated. And they did two things in their disappointment and their devastation. They doubted Jesus and they questioned Jesus. But God is big enough to handle himself. Jesus wasn't put off by their doubts. He wasn't put off by their blame. He wasn't put off by their questions. 
They approached him respectfully. They called him Lord, but their message was clear. But again, Jesus wasn't put off because he had a surprise in store for them. He was about to teach those two sisters something that all of us need to know. He was going to teach it to his disciples. He was even going to soon teach it to Lazarus. They were going to discover that the gap between the miracle we desire and its occurrence isn't as great as we often imagine. Sometimes it can be bridged by one single act of obedience. One simple act of faith in response to God's instructions or God's invitation. If we'll just follow God's directions, the gap between what we desire and its happening can be closed in a moment. The sisters and the disciples were about to learn something else. God sometimes permits a gap between our request and his provision in order to expose the gaps in our faith. Lazarus' sudden death had left his sisters to wrestle with the devastating combination, the cocktail of grief, a sense of betrayal, and doubt. They knew Jesus had loved their brother. They knew Jesus loved them. But they also knew their brother's death could have been avoided if Jesus had just hustled to get to them at first news of their brother's sickness. But instead, he remained where he was for two full days. So they were asking themselves the question, why would he do that? Why had he done that? Now, you know as well as I do, when something's bothering us, we are not very good at keeping it hidden for very long. It, it will ultimately be revealed in our speech. If you're angry with God, if you're frustrated with God, if you're doubting God, you're not going to keep that bottled up forever. At some point, you're got to announce it with your lips. So... Mary and Martha, who encountered Jesus when he arrived at two different times, both said the identical words to Jesus. That tells me they had been thinking about them quite a while and they had probably compared notes. Because the very first thing they said was, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That's how they greeted him. Now, their words were respectful. They opened with, Lord. They can conveyed confidence in his power. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. You could have healed him. But they conveyed something else. They conveyed disappointment with his heart. They were convinced he was Lord. They were convinced he was powerful. But now they had some serious doubts about his heart. Now Mary and Martha didn't know what Jesus had said to his disciples when he first learned about Lazarus' condition. And that was probably for the better. Because here's what Jesus said to the disciples. I'm glad for your sakes I wasn't there so that you may believe. Now, those words must have left his disciples scratching their heads. I'm glad I wasn't there. 
And I suspect the disciples were glad that Lazarus' sisters hadn't heard those words, and I'm sure they didn't feel obligated to share them. But they and the sisters were about to learn that God often discloses good news in words that initially don't sound very good. Words like, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Doesn't sound very good at first, does it? Or how about this one? Blessed are you when men persecute you. That doesn't sound very good at first here. Or words like, I'm glad for your sakes I wasn't there. Now in this case, Jesus' words remind us that God desires more for us than a miracle that brings relief. He desires faith that brings restoration. Let me say that again. God is more concerned with bringing you faith that leads to your restoration than just doing a miracle that produces momentary relief. The benefits of faith remain long after the benefits of a miracle have faded. But the faith that God desires is based on an accurate understanding of who God is rather than who we think he is, who we'd like to think he is, who other people say he is. And when you see God as he truly is, Scripture has a word for what you're seeing. It's glory. When you see God as he really is, you're seeing his glory. So God's glory in Scripture isn't some mysterious thing we can never know. It's something he wants us to know. It's his full revelation of himself. Now Lazarus, before he died, Mary, Martha, knew Jesus as a friend. They knew Jesus as a skilled teacher. They knew him as a healer. They knew him as a man of compassion. They knew him as a miracle worker. They knew him as a voice for justice. They knew him as Lord. But there's more to Jesus than that. He is also, as he said, the resurrection and the life. He is Lord over death, and they and the disciples needed to learn that. So his delay in coming to Bethany was their invitation to learn. Most of God's delays in our life are actually invitations to learn something. They're not denials. They're invitations. There's something I need to show you. I'll get to what I need to do for you, but before that, there's something I need to show you. And the lesson Jesus wanted them to learn didn't stop with the greater knowledge of who he is as the resurrection and the life. He wanted to lead them to a greater knowledge of who they were. And I say that because when we see God accurately, we begin to see ourselves accurately. When Jesus said, the truth will set you free, that's not only the truth about God, that's not only the truth about life, that's not only truth about the future, that's truth about yourself. 
absent accurate knowledge of God, we are left in the dark about ourselves. Because absent knowledge of God, accurate knowledge of God, we base our perceptions of ourselves and our self-image on a host of influences and all of them are inferior to God and most of them aren't trustworthy. We base our concept of ourself on the opinions of people. We base our concept of ourselves on our past experiences in culture, in the home, in our family setting. We base our conception of ourself on past pains, on past betrayals, even perhaps past successes. But all of those things are inferior to God, and they leave us with a self-image that exists nowhere outside of our own imagination. And when your self-image isn't rooted in reality, you'll end up selling yourself a bill of goods and falling for almost anything. If we don't understand who we are, we set ourselves up for a whole host of unnecessary disappointments. In this culture, when somebody says, this is who I feel I am, we applaud them for discovery. But those words, this is who I feel I am, do not signal a great discovery. They signal a great need. Only God knows us as we truly are. And we can't know ourselves as we truly are until we know him. If we're going to learn who God is, however, and if we're going to learn who we are, we need to identify the barriers to that knowledge, and then we need to remove them. And this story reminds us the biggest barrier we face to knowing God and knowing ourselves is our undetected unbelief. That's why when Jesus stood before Lazarus' tomb, he gave the command, remove the stone. Before Jesus does what only Jesus can do, he often asks us to do what we can do. Only Jesus could raise Lazarus, but Lazarus' friends could certainly remove the stone that sealed the tomb. It would take some effort, but it was doable. So once they did, or once Jesus gave the command, he immediately encountered the problem. He encountered unbelief. Because as soon as he said those words, remove the stone, Martha responded, Lord, that's not a good idea. The smell will choke a horse. Now, her objection confirmed two things. First of all, even deep faith is subject to some dark hours. True faith will always face some dark hours. But second, as I'm sure you've noticed by now, unbelief always has its reasons. It has a big but. One T. <laughs> Makes a world of difference. <laughs> unbelief always has a rationale. Unbelief always has an excuse. Unbelief always has a justification for its reluctance. Lord, I know you're powerful, but... Lord, I know you promised, but. 
Lord, I know you care, but I'm going to pause and tell you a fun story. A veteran alliance pastor who had been in the ministry for decades when I was just starting shared with me a story of how at a local alliance camp he was praying with a woman who had come to the altar. And this woman was struggling to believe that Jesus had actually saved her. She was struggling with what we call the assurance of her salvation. Well, she spoke to the pastor, and his name was Don Miles. And she said, Pastor Miles, I know the scripture says if you call upon the but I, I just don't feel this. And so, so Pastor Miles would give her a scripture. Uh, anybody who comes to me, I will not turn away. All who call upon, and with every scripture, she would say, I know that, Pastor Miles, but, and then she would give her objection. He'd give her another scripture. I know that, Pastor Miles, but, he'd give her another scripture. I know that, Pastor Miles, but, finally, in his exasperation, without thinking carefully of what he was about to say, he said, sister, that's the problem. That big butt of yours keeps getting in the way. <laughs> Needless to say, things sort of broke down after that, and uh, she walked off in a huff. But his diagnosis had been correct. If you, if you just use one T, she had a butt, butt, but, but in this case, in the face of Martha's objections, Jesus wasn't having any of it because Jesus knew the real issue. Jesus always knows the real issue. The issue wasn't the smell of decay. It was the suffocating effects of their doubts. And so he responded by saying, didn't I say, if you believe? So then they removed the stone. And at that point, Jesus called Lazarus forth by name. And that was important because that was a cemetery area. That cave would have contained many deceased men and women or their remains. And if Jesus had stood in front of that and just said, come forth, he would have emptied the place. Jesus can empty cemeteries with two words, come forth. But he was only looking for one guy. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus emerged. But he was all wrapped up in the grave clothes. So Jesus, again, called Lazarus' friends to do what Lazarus' friends could do. He said, unwrap him. He's a party waiting to happen. <laughs> he wants to get his groove on. He wants to celebrate. He can't do it when he's all bound up. Remove the grave clothes from him. And another little detour here. I've always felt that's a beautiful picture of what God wants to do in Christian fellowship. Jesus is the only one who can raise us to newness of life and give us the new birth. But after we come to Jesus, we still have a lot of stinking thinking that 
binds us from fully enjoying all that God has done for us, keeps us from getting our groove on at the party. And so Jesus calls our friends, our fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, to point things out to us, to listen to our stories, to help us identify why we're struggling, to help us identify the source of the struggle, and as they do so, they're unwrapping the things that keep us from enjoying the party. That's why God doesn't call anybody to Lone Ranger Christianity. We need one another to get rid of our junk so that we can dance at the party. Now, that's not the point of the story I want to leave with you. Here's the point I want to leave with you. Jesus has the power to turn our need into a testimony. But before he does, we may need to remove a stone. Let me give you some examples. Maybe your stone is an apology you need to make. And God speaks to you about that every so often, and every so often you say, hmm... You know, they, they were at fault as well, and I don't know how they'd receive it. And Well, they might see that as an admission that the problem was entirely me, and it wasn't. Or And so we say, hmm, no, I'm going to pass on that. Maybe the stone you need to remove is a forgiveness that you need to extend to somebody, even though they've never asked for it even though they still think you're the problem, not them. Maybe it's a root of bitterness you've allowed to grow up in your soul. Maybe it's an honest confession of a sin. Scripture says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Maybe it's coming clean about a hidden addiction that has tyrannized your life far too long. Maybe it's breaking from some unwise path or some badly chosen relationship that's going to lead to ruin. Maybe the stone you need to remove is the end of an emerging inappropriate emotional flirtation with somebody other than your spouse. Maybe it's the release of some resource God has put into your hand and he wants to use it for his kingdom. Or maybe... It's the unbelief that has kept you from ever coming to Jesus at all for the new life that he promises. Whatever it may be, God cannot and will not do what only he can do until you're willing to do what you can do. He can raise the Lazarus but you need to remove the stone. Now, when he speaks to you about it, you'll immediately say, it's not a good idea. <laughs> Martha would not be the last to say, not a good idea. You'll have all your objections. They'll even seem logical. Bodies do smell after four days. And God will say, didn't I say, if you believe. Moving past your doubt is never easy, but it becomes a bit easier if you'll remember that when we act, God reacts. 
If we will remove the stone that stands between us and a greater knowledge of God and ourselves, God will reverse the downward spiral of unbelief. He makes the first move, inviting us. We have to make the second move, stepping out in faith. Then he makes the third move, he raises our Lazarus. So as we close, because teaching is for application, not just information, I want you to take a few moments and ask the Lord, is there some stone standing between where I am and where you want to take me? between something I've been praying about and the realization of it, between who you want me to be and where I am currently. If, if there is some stone that is standing between me and your next good thing for me, Lord, show me that stone and help me to believe and remove it. And sometimes the best prayer you can pray is the one that was expressed in authenticity in Scripture when a gentleman said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I, I, I believe, but I'm not all the way yet. Help me to get to the finish line. And boy, you know, if you start, if you open the door, God's capable of much more than we anticipate. So take a few moments, say, Lord, are there any stones in my life I need to remove? If so, commit yourself to removing them, and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, many times there are things our hearts long for that aren't happening. And when they don't, disappointment with you has a way of settling into our heart. And then when you invite us out into something better, we respond with all of our buts and our objections and our unbelief. I pray that you would speak to every one of us about any stone of unbelief that we need to remove so that we might see the next great thing that only you are capable of in our lives. And help us to remember this story wherever and whenever we need to. Because all throughout life, we will come up against impossible things and our hearts and minds will say, uh, it cannot be. And in most cases, you'll be there saying, it can be if you'll remove the stone. So Lord, like that gentleman in Scripture, we confess we believe, but help our unbelief. And help us to remove the stones that keep us and others 
from the incredibly good things you have ordained for us. And we pray that we'll remember this story whenever we need to, in Jesus' name. Amen.